Yes, this is uh, Chris Alexander. I'm uh, the editor of Fangoria Magazine, Gorezone Magazine, Delirium Magazine, probably a few other magazines I forgot about. And uh, we're going to talk about Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht, today. Uh, Somebody can pronounce it. Ah, you just have to. I've got the cold, right? So I just clear my throat and it sounds like I'm pronouncing it right. Klaus Kinski is a god, although he's a pervert, was a perverted maniac, but that's okay. Some of my best friends are perverted maniacs. Is that good? This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. Talking with me again is David Kleiler, former film professor at Babson College and artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. Joining us on this episode is Chris Alexander, editor of Fangoria Magazine. And we're going to talk about Werner Herzog's 1979 film Nosferatu the Vampire, or Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht. So is, it, is this your favorite film of all time? Is yeah, I should, I, should, I should clarify it. It's not my, well, you know the favorite film, sometimes it's like a rotating yeah. thing. Sometimes it is, but I, it's my favorite vampire film of all time. I should, I should put it that way. My, although my favorite subgenre is vampire, so it seems to float in the orbit of number one film. I think my favorite film of all time is actually probably Night of the Hunter. But, uh, oh, that's a great film. Sweet. Yeah. That's but another I, nice expressionist film. Does your taste go in that direction? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the abstract, the expressionist, uh, there's no doubt about it. The more, uh, the more expressionist, surreal, and, and uh, alien uh, the better for me. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, Not of the Hunter's a great film. Yeah. I was one of the few people that saw it when it, it came is. out in 1955. Wow. Wow. Lucky you. Chris, I have to ask, at what point did you decide that this was your favorite vampire film? Well, I, did I, you see this as a kid or? Did, well, I saw, you know, you all my, it? yeah, I did. I, and that's, I think, all my favorite films. And that's why I gravitated towards horror is that they were so uh, singular and so subjective in the sense that. Um, I was allowed to watch horror movies as a kid um, to a point. You, you were allowed to. I, I was, yeah. Okay. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was an odyssey for me, so it was nothing denied. And in Toronto, we had a channel called City TV, and my father used to work nights, and I think my mother was just lonely because she liked this stuff too. Uh-huh. And she would, let, she would let me stay up and watch these movies. And um, we started – I remember I was probably about six, and I remember Nosferatu came on. I vividly remember the mummies and how – uh, frightening, oh, yeah. frightening they were, but of course it's mute. There's no story, and I had no idea the context of these these things or even what they were. But it was the the Florian Fricke, the Popol Vuh music, um, haunting. But now, of course the yeah. movie movie bored me. I couldn't gravitate towards it. It took a long time to get going, and it wasn't my cup of tea at the time. But I yeah. couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was years later. I think I caught it at one or two in the morning after I'd been out um, somewhere. I was probably about fifteen. And uh, I came back and I was pulling an all-nighter and I, I watched the entire movie and uh, it just it just did me in. And it didn't frighten yeah. me. It didn't frighten me in the sense that I was I was horrified by the film. It, I was hypnotized by it. It was an experience. And um, I know, would say hypnotic and creepy. I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah. starting off with the with the mummified remains of these people. Creepy, not yeah. scary, just di- exceptionally disconcerting. And also very, very lonely. And I think, you know, when the movie really hit me, it was at a point where I was at that age where I was just, A, I, I understood cinema. So I understood the the beauty of the film, the, the majesty of it, but also um, really grappling with the sense that everything I, I, I love and everything I know will eventually, is temporary and everything will die. And that's what I think Nosferatu is about. I think that's the beauty of it is that it really is this sort of uh, haunting 
earthy poem about uh, how finite life is and uh, and the loneliness. I mean, Roger Ebert wrote a great essay about what Nosferatu was and and how it exemplified just the, what the grinding loneliness of what being a vampire would be. It was a collection of images and sounds uh, based around the theme and the feeling and the loneliness of, of the concept of vampirism. And I think yeah. that's, that's what really appealed to me then and still appeals to me today about the movie. It's funny because uh, when I first saw the film, uh, I didn't get that part. It film felt, and it wasn't, you know, it's not heavily narrative driven. Uh, it's more like a tone poem in many ways. Mm-hmm. But, it's so curious that uh, Steve and I just did a podcast on the uh, only lovers left alive. Yeah. Where there's a kind of a way that the juxtaposition of these two, like back to back. I mean, I didn't, I had forgotten that actually uh, Nosferatu yearns for death. Yeah. yearns for it. Strange. Yeah. Strange, isn't it? And, it? and it seems like he tries to be, you know, makes these, these desperate attempts to be human. Right. Well, this is, the, you know, what, what's interesting about the movie, and then again, uh, Nosferatu being the jumping point off where I then discovered Herzog, is that I've always attributed uh, Nosferatu in the in the canon of Herzog's work to be a sort of sequel, if you will, to, to Gary, in the sense that when we leave a Gary, he's this power-mad lunatic who thinks he has the world by the throat, and then when we, we meet Nosferatu, he's this tired old thing that has been battered down by all he has no dreams left he has nothing left in him and there's nowhere else to go you know and mm. i i find it a you know kind of a continuation of that character in the sense that uh, gary in many ways is a kind of vampire and this is what's left of him at the end and now at the end of his rope the only thing you know we say he yearns for death he does but he also yearns i think primarily for human connection and love and when that he knows that that's denied him and he'll never get that that's when he realizes that the only exit is is the the absolute one that he cannot this uh, get you know mm. there's a, again there's that beauty in the that the loneliness of the film that it's just so so potent and you know it's interesting i i, I immediately recalled when you said one of the moments that's so attractive about the film is the music yeah. and and i and i recall there's there's a couple of stretches in the film where maybe the music repeats itself but there's a a sweet mm-hmm. a section of music that just he lets it evolve yes and and it just becomes mesmerizing are you talking and, about and, are you talking about the, the piece of the wagner the wagner yes, piece? But yeah, yes yeah yeah which where's the wagner piece what's it from oh geez i forget it's something from uh, the ring cycle. Yeah. yeah, it is. I don't remember what. Is it? Is it the ring cycle? I'm pretty sure okay. it is. Yeah, and it's this. It's the section where you're, where we first introduced to the ruins of the castle, right? right. Yeah, and it just keeps da 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 da. It keeps ascending it's, like that. It's strange because most of the music in the film is very ambient and and experimental, and uh, and it, when it breaks into that bit of almost that optimistic grandiosity it almost seems i remember seeing it for the first time and thinking that maybe that piece of music didn't belong in the film and now of yeah. course it absolutely belongs in the film well i just love it when the filmmaker lets the music run the movie oh yeah as yeah. opposed to editing it the other way oh yeah i mean there's again that that during that piece as we mentioned we're staring at perhaps like a, a single image for quite some time with maybe the uh, the clouds moving behind uh, the ruins. Um, yeah. And it lets he lets Herzog, and he does this a lot, he lets that image stay on screen longer than it probably should be. And it become mm-hmm. it, it crosses that path, where that, that point of no return, where then it becomes hypnotic, and then it becomes an environment. Yeah, yeah you know, I would even add that there's a moment when... Um, Oh God! I forget the I forget the exact. There's a, there's an elongated shadow, and the reason that the shadow, as he's approaching the castle, just stays on screen is that Herzog wanted 
the image to the, the shadow to have a greater definition and meaning than the actual person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Klaus Kinski as Dracula, I, I think I will go ahead and say it's my favorite performance by an uh, actor of Dracula. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you there. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a brilliant performance. But I mean, you know, we would expect nothing less from that collaboration. Yeah. Um, and it really, I mean, how much of it is, is Kinski? You know what I, actually I like about it is that, and when you talk to Werner about the movie, he'll tell you that, is that he's at his, uh, Kinski was at his most well-behaved during that film. He was seen, Really? He, I thought he was uh, an explosive personality, well, and they, he, and they he, argued a lot, he like was, screaming but, arguments. Well, that would, that would be par for the course for every movie that they did, but they weren't threatening death upon each other. I mean, it was considerably, when, when put up against uh, Aguirre or Fitzcarraldo, he was at his uh, at his best, I think, or at least he was maybe in deep enough with the character that he was restrained, I think. And then that's the whole point is that I think he got lost in being Dracula and uh, mm. being this version of Dracula that is so uh, dissonant. What I kind of found kind of interesting about your talking about Kinski's performance. Yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, one likes Kinski because he's usually thought of as anything but subdued. Right. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but it is interesting um, he, he blended in with everybody else because I, you know, watching it the other night, I felt that these were people who had been auditioning for Hearts of Glass. Uh, yeah. There was a whole way that uh, if the film is hypnotic, it act, the actors are almost like acting as if they're hypnotized. Mm. Right. And I think mm. the only natural, uh, naturalistic performance may be that the guy who plays Von Helsing. Yeah, but, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think what's interesting too is maybe with Kinski, Kinski was a, um, you know, there's always that, never mind what he's accused of doing in his personal life, but you're never quite sure how much of Kinski is the performance artist and how much of him is genuinely insane. But certainly, I think, many, you know, there's very few films where he was buried under the level of makeup that he was hiding behind with Nosferatu. Right. And, yeah. and maybe because of that, he felt maybe he didn't need, this is just speculation, of course, maybe he felt like he didn't need to overcompensate with that kind of manic energy. Maybe he felt he could hide behind that and become something else and let the the uh, the shock of the visage kind of do the talking because what i love about the movie too is that it's about the van helsing being the natural kind of element but i find that the beauty of herzog's natural world and then this dose of something completely unnatural that's kinski moving within it yeah it's so stark and alarming you know because it's mm -hmm. this incredible uh, almost like a like all herzog's movies almost documentary like and then suddenly there's this uh, vermin kind of parading around in the shadows and it's just like wow i mean it's just alarming uh, dichotomy there and not just his makeup i think the entirety of his physicality his fingers yes his and fingers then the, like the dinner table scene it's just yeah. creepy yeah it's, uh, creepy, it's yeah. it's a 100 percent full body performance it is by klaus yeah. kinski yeah <laughs> absolutely you know what's interesting about the movies I, I you know he asked me why maybe why this is uh one of my favorite movies <laughs> but I mentioned this in my, uh, I, you know, I put Nosferatu on the cover, the recent cover of Fangoria to celebrate its oh. 35th. Mm -hmm. So the, the issue 334 hits, I think it's on stands now or it'll hit imminently. And uh, it has a, we have a seven page uh, interview with, with Werner, a new one about the film. But um, wow. yeah, Great. but I, I mentioned this in the editorial that when I, when I was, I guess, 17 or 18, I, uh, I met this girl and she was, you know, suburban girl. She was a year younger than me and she was hanging out with, um, you know, a lot of, all they did was drink and, and basically, you know, 
shag each other in their parents' rec rooms and stuff, right? But she wasn't <laughs> like that. So she met me, and I was kind of the oddball. I liked all this odd cinema, and Nosferatu was playing at a rep theater in downtown Toronto. We got on a bus. I took her there. Mm-hmm. And I said, you got to see this movie. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. Don't expect, you know, a crazy blood and guts action packed movie. It's it's this poem. You know, I was just rhapsodizing about this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got in there to see it. And it was the German version, which I was excited about because I'd only seen the English language version. So the German one being longer, the gypsy boys in it, etc. But they had French subtitles on it. They got the wrong print by accident. Really? Neither, yeah. Neither of oh. us <laughs> spoke German or French. So her first introduction to the film was totally alien. Neither of us even were listening to the words of this film. We were completely experiencing it on this visceral level where it was just image. I mean, the, the story still tells itself without the words. You know, you know something, Henri Langlois of the Paris Cinematheque would say, that's the perfect way to first experience a foreign, foreign film. Absolutely. Is and to see it, the imagery without the subtitles. I, you, without, I agree 100%. So the subtitles were there. They meant nothing to us. They were just bugs on the bottom of the screen. But uh, mm-hmm. the point being is that, um, that that girl ended up uh, liking me enough to stick around and she ended up marrying me and we have a couple kids and everything else. So our, our kind of huh. whole love affair was based on uh, taking her to this beautiful film in, in the most bizarre uh, circumstances, seeing it in wow. completely double foreign languages. So there you go. Wow. You know, one of the things that's interesting, though, apart from the subdued performance by Kinski, it's the most subdued I've ever seen Isabella Johnny in any film. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, uh, she doesn't have, you know, one of her, you know, patented uh, hysterical scenes. Yeah. Well, it is. Hmm. I mean, it is a silent movie. It is akin to the original film. It's everyone's acting in a very exaggerated physical way. It's still an homage to the stylization of Renault. Uh, it just um, happens to have words in it, you know? So uh, Johnny uh, does, she does have those freakouts, but she does it exclusively with her eyes. Her eyes know, get wide, you know? Yes. I was going to say, it's in, in response to both of the actors being somewhat subdued compared to their other performances, didn't Herzog say that he prefers to see the audience cry? Not the actors. It is very. I mean, this is, and then, and then to do that, it's just, it is a certain stoicism, perhaps, that he uh, prefers. Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, the one thing maybe in line with that st- sentiment is that, I mean, there's that beautiful shot, and it actually happens twice in the film. One where uh, Jonathan is about to embark on his journey to Transylvania, and the two of them have that long, that long shot. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Walking, but we see them only from behind. And the second yeah. one is where she's pining for Jonathan, sitting in the graveyard overlooking the cliff, and we only see her from behind as well. And that's mm. that's Herzog's technique of not interfering with those intimate moments with his characters and just huh. letting the audience give the character that space where they are trying to figure out what this person is feeling, but not mm-hmm. invading their their them their space too much, not in getting right in their face, not getting that the, that gynecological detail. Sure, uh, and the camera was pretty far away. Yeah, it's, it's distanced, and we only hear that you know gentle piano of Popol Vuh playing on the soundtrack, and it's mm. uh, it is a gorgeous moment where you know everything that's going on, but there's this privacy there that I find quite profound. You know, I think one of the fun parts about um, talking about a, a Herzog film or, or reading up on the making of it is that one, I think one can assume that there's an adventure behind making yes. these movies like Fitzcarraldo, unlike this movie, like like yes. like what he wanted to do and what he was able to do and what he uh, goes through to 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 make his films. The, the stories, or maybe he's just a great storyteller. I don't know. Are 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 fun. I mean, yes. he wanted to film this in Transylvania. Yes. Uh, I guess he they found a a, a castle near Vienna. Right. Uh, that was somewhat uh, run down. And then there was the whole uh, scenario with the rats. Right. How does one find 10,000 rats and get them into a, uh, 
a city to let them run free along the uh, uh, the waterways like that. It's just insane. And a, and a, on and a city and a city that had had previously had a, a serious problem with rats, so they had to take all these precautions to shut off all the you know every point of entry to every canal to uh, you know s- s- water system so that the rats wouldn't wouldn't. How uh, could they possibly contain this? I don't know. But how do, they, how do you get did. rid of this they after did. the movie? Now there was some controversy, and I don't know all the details. There was some controversy about how the rats were treated, or or some sort of accusations. Am I right? Uh, uh, larded against uh, Herzog for maybe some way that the rats were treated poorly. But according to yeah, Herzog, yeah, yeah, yeah. But according to Herzog, he never he treated them well. He he helped wrangle them. He got bit a bunch of times, but none of them were hurt, and uh, he didn't. They never lost a one. He said hmm. never lost a one. Wow. So I don't know how he did it. And again, how much of that is hyperbole? I don't know. But uh, there's always, yeah, these great stories, like John Huston-esque stories of adventure behind every Herzog. And why did the town let him do this? I mean, crazy. I, I don't know. I don't know. Because he's Werner Herzog, I guess. He, I don't know. Very, he carries influence. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> um, David, when uh, when did you first see the uh, see the film? When it first came out. Oh, did you? Um, yeah. It was at the uh, tail end. I was still trying to... Uh, a grapple with my dissertation. My dissertation was actually on Hitchcock's films in Germany. He was in Germany in, 19, in the 1920s making films. Mm-hmm. And clearly a lot of his stylists has come out of the evolution of film language that was going on in, in Germany. So obviously, but I, my, my background my, was basically the films of the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. So apart from being a Herzog fan, I was also a Nosferatu fan. Yeah. And how could I not see it? Did right. you ever uh, did you ever get a, uh, get a chance to show it at the Coolidge? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Well, don't forget that was twenty years later. Yeah, I was at the Coolidge, and or no, ten years later. But no, um, I didn't. Have, we didn't have a repertory theater except when there was a more specific context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to run a theater in Boston, uh, and still running. Uh, that's a, a great old independent theater. Um, Chris, you said you got an interview with uh, Werner Herzog. I, yeah. I'm impressed because. I'm told he's very selective. Yeah, I've, I've um, you know, I, I have met Werner on several occasions. I mean, the first time I'd interviewed him was in a, we had a, kind of lunch in a courtyard during the Toronto Film Festival when he uh, made the Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which I just thought was uh, oh, wow, yeah. my favorite film of that year because I'm a huge Nick yeah. Cage fan as well. And to me, he's the logical extension of Kinski in a way. But uh yeah, so we had a hmm. we we connect, kind of connected on that on that level. We, we talked a lot about music and and um, so and then there was a couple. He released um, you know the film he did with David Lynch, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? We we did some stuff for that. So um, I also know his brother, uh, Lucky, a little bit. So we uh, I connected to him on that level and just said, you know, we're gonna I got to put this thing on the cover. I know it's being re-released and domestically on Blu-ray and. We mm. gotta we gotta kind of throw a little party for this movie, and he he obliged. He was right in the middle of cutting um, Desert Queen, uh, the new movie he's making with Nicole Kidman. So it's kind of interesting mm. to hear some stuff about the, the production of that. And and wow. uh, yeah, it was a great time. And you know the thing about Herzog is, as you know, and it's evident in all his movies, is that he's a very 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 funny guy, right? He is hilarious, yes. hilarious yes. guy. And just if you get him going and you get the right questions and you and you just. Um, you let him loose. He's just, he's the funniest, funniest guy. So we had a, we had a great interview, I think. Yeah. I think his, uh, his basic character has, he has an essential sense of humor that comes across. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you've like, seen, you've seen the um, incident at Loch Ness. He's very much in, in on his own persona, on his joke. So he doesn't take yeah. himself really seriously. Uh, so did you get a chance, have you gotten a chance to see the uh, new Blu-ray? Uh, the new Shout, there's a British one, which I have not seen, but I have seen the new Shout uh, Factory Blu-ray. Yes. Have you? 
Uh, no, I haven't yet. Demon was just telling me uh, within the hour about how amazing the BBC. Yeah. Uh, BFI, yeah. The BFI the restoration BFI, of it is. Everyone's happy about that one. The uh, the Scream Factory one is, um, you know, when I first, I'm very much, maybe it's because I'm very used to over the past 10 years, my uh, Anchor Bay set. So um, mm. I'm, I'm used to the movie kind of having a softer uh, look. Um, mm. So I, initially I was kind of alarmed at some of the harsher edges and there was quite a bit of... Um, quite a bit of grain through some of the black scenes, but I mean, that was not what bothered me. I got, I got used to that very quickly and, and admired that. It looked great, but, mm. um, I, I found some of the, I, I, and again, I don't know the, the ratio is a bit, a bit stretched. It didn't look right to me. And I, I did call shout factory about that. I said, you know, hmm. are you sure you want to release this? It doesn't look right. And, uh, no, I mean, I even talked to uh, Werner's brother about that and they, Werner personally supervised that transfer. So really? if, there, if there's anything wow. wrong with it, it's, it's not wrong with its creator. So I can't fault it on that level. Sure. Sure. Uh, David, being a, uh, Herzog uh, fan, what, mm-hmm. where would you say this sort of is in your opinion amongst his filmography? Where does it? Well, I'm a, a Gary Wrath of God fan. Yeah, me yeah. too. And Mystery of Casper Hauser. I mean, I, that, those were the, I mean, I have to admit when I, in the evolution of my own film knowledge, when I saw those two films from what, the middle 70s, uh, I thought I was seeing a completely original storyteller that was doing things that I hadn't seen before. So it's not that he hadn't, things hadn't been done like that before, but I'd never seen them before. Hmm. So that the kind of revelation, uh, I just never forget the feeling I came out of when I saw Aguirre, The Wrath of God. I don't think I'd ever seen Klaus Kinski in a film before that I knew of. So, to me, that's just for like a revelation. Have I really reflected? I mean, for God's sake, on a, ask me on another date. I was a cave of forgotten dreams. Is my favorite film of all of his. Sure. And in many ways, that film did certainly make me think that occasionally there could be good use of 3D. Yeah. And again, I just I love the way he plays, plays around with in his documentaries, plays around with narrative structure, is in the uh, Grizzly Man, that kind of thing. I mean, he's constantly doing things that I've never seen before in films. Yeah. Well, Fitzcarraldo would certainly rank as one of those things. I mean, dragging a steamship up over a, a mountain like that. That, that was my, uh, I'm mentioning it because it was my ex- uh, the first film I'd seen of his that he'd done. Well, and this was way back on, I think it was a Betamax cassette that I had rented uh, in one of the big puffy uh, boxes in the early 80s. Dual cassette. Well, see, the idea of, of uh, a lot of the films that have liked it's like man in extreme. I mean, mm. I go back to seeing is the great ecstasy of the sculptor Steiner and Le Soufrier where he hauls off his cameraman to go down there to film this The guy's this an guy. adventurer. Yeah, it's yeah. great. You know? Great the, stuff. The well, chances I, that he... Oh, go I, ahead. I, I, know, I was saying I remember I, Fitzcarraldo was kind of ruined for me because I'd seen Burden of Dreams first. So, oh, really? Yeah, oh. so there was the whole, you know, I knew going in the, the illusion, the wizard behind the curtain was revealed by the time I got to actually see Fitzcarraldo. Uh-huh. Still a, a remarkable film, but um, to me, Burden of Dreams is is the true is my favorite of the ex- way to experience that story of of the two because it's just so sure. outrageous. Sure, sure. I still remember images from Burden of Dreams. Sort of uh, did less blank. Yeah, there was that less one blank. Too. Yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah. Yes. Was that a Criterion release on its own, or was it like a supplement? Uh, I don't know. I think I thought it was uh, maybe on like a less blank collection or something like that. But uh, yeah, that was quite amazing. They screened it at the Coolidge actually a couple of years ago. Sarah and I went and saw a print of it. It was fa- mm-hmm. yeah, just you know fascinating. 
that a filmmaker goes to that length. And, you know, talking about uh, adventures, pr prior to making Nosferatu, he said that he had extended his visa in the U.S., I think it was in 78 or 79, and uh, he was in the verge of being kicked out of America, so he uh, escaped into Mexico, which is where he visited this town that had the graves that you see at the beginning yeah. of Nosferatu. And uh, he had talked about um, carrying the actual corpses to right. different, or, or I guess maybe even to the cemetery, and they were uh, just uh, just hollowed husks of people, and just just the thought of that is creepy. So he went back there for Nosferatu to film that experience that he'd had. That's right. Yeah. They're extra, think, they're extra creepy, too, I might add, because some of them are wearing shoes. Uh, you don't notice oh that. Oh, my they're God, con yeah, yeah. Contemporary yeah. shoes that don't... Yeah. That just, you know, again, they have absolutely... No, the beauty of, of them even in the movie is that they have absolutely no relevance to the story or, or even Dracula at all. Mm. They're just impressions of desiccation that, that uh, work so well to set the mood for what the movie's about. Chris, I have to ask you, having talked with him, about the making of the film. Was there anything that really stuck with you, that surprised you, that you didn't know about, as, uh, you know, uh, knowing what you know about the making of Nosferatu? Um, disappointingly, uh, not, because I know, again, I know a lot about the film. I don't think that there's if there's one flaw about putting a film like Nosferatu on the, on the cover for aficionados. It's that most of the stories have been told. Uh, yeah. For the newbie, however, for the point of entry, for the person just discovering the film, it's it's a great entry point. Um, yeah. So not not particularly. Maybe some of the stories about the rats, and just again further cementing uh, Herzog's ability, hands-on ability, is that he was the rat wrangler. Also the bats. And one of the lovely little touches I love about the movie is that you know when uh, Bruno Ganz is writing in his diaries, there's these little fruit bats hanging in the peripherals and in, in the corners of the windows. There's always something happening, and. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about that and how everyone was afraid to handle the bats, and he was the guy that had to just roll up his sleeves and said, okay, forget that. And then there's the giant flying foxes that end up in Lucy's room that, again, yeah. no, nobody would touch, so he had to just wrestle these giant bats and put them into place. And, and uh, I mean, just stuff like, just little touches like that that just make you laugh at just what a badass that this, this guy is, you know? It wasn't, wasn't he in, the, um, in, in one of those coffins and had rats crawling all over him or something? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, get... yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't put it beyond him. Actually, I'd like to ask Chris, what do you make of the riding into the sunset scene at the end? How do you, what does one do with that, not only in terms of the film as a whole, but in terms of the work of, of Herzog's work overall? In the sense of how does that image hold up in the context of, of his other yeah. films? Or in the, what do you uh, make of the, of the image? Well, there was no, again, watching this movie by myself on, on television late at night, and that mm -hmm. sequence, um, I mean... Still, it makes your heart jump into your throat. It's the most one of the most beautiful images I've ever seen in any movie, any time. Mm -hmm. And to end your movie like that, to just have him go off into the sunset. And again, I've shown this to so many, you know, my students when I when I taught film history and you know, and, and horror film fans and vampire fans who who think that Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is the definitive Dracula, and I have to correct them so many. Mm. But <laughs> to just show them that single image. To, sh to show what Herzog was doing, again, using the, the world, using nature as a character, yeah, and using his skills as a, as a documentary filmmaker to capture that moment. Um, today, it would obviously be done with the green screen solution. There would be some sort oh, of sure, digital sure. trickery that any five-year-old kid in his basement would understand how to do it. But there's, there's a majesty to that, to that sequence. And what's even more beautiful about it 
as the final shot is that the movie just smashes to black afterwards and has no closing credits. And it just sits in the state of black at the end and the music just trails off uh, for for quite some time. The, the piece of music finishes, if I'm not mistaken, for another minute or minute and a half. It, that's true. You're right. It does. Yeah. And so it leaves it's you gone. with this, you know, you don't, there's no credits, there's no uh, language, there's not, there's no other information except what your eyes have seen and are still now burned upon them. And then what your ears are listening to. And, and it has such a power and such a resonance. Uh, to me, it is the most incredible way to end any film. Uh, I could be wrong, but didn't they also, didn't Herzog also use one of the locations from Murnau's Nosferatu? That I don't. I can't. I can't be. I can't be positive. Did you mention that? that? No, I. I didn't. We. I didn't. I didn't ask him about that. I. I ah. wasn't sure. Which location do you think? Uh, uh, it was the exterior of a building. Uh, I. I. Uh, Triang. Uh, Dima saying here. He says it's. It's the building. What? What is it? The building where he's hiding the coffins. Oh really? So that that okay. would have been where he was stacking. The yes, coffins. when he's running around with the little coffins under his arms, and yeah, okay, interesting. Wow. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, wasn't sure either. But uh, yeah, the other thing yeah. I have to the other thing I have yeah. to mention really quickly about the again the sure, I, th- I think sure. the most powerful scene in any movie, and why I think it's again as far as stacked up against all the great Herzog films. Like Gary is probably my my favorite Herzog movie, but but that's the sequence the, the the plague sequence in Nosferatu is again one of the most powerful I've seen in any film and yeah. and uh, you know just the sound the the sound completely drops out there is pe- there are people speaking there are animals moving and defecating but there's no sound in camera sound there's just that beautiful chant uh, the the Georgian uh, singers the chanting music and uh, just watching these these people move watching as Johnny move around this scene of this mm-hmm. carnival of death, you know, again, when I first saw that, it just, I'd never seen anything like it. And I still can't yeah. think there's anything else quite like that in cinema. And there was this, this, this banquet around the, yes, uh, yes. And then it cuts. So everyone's it celebrating their last moments on earth. And then it cuts to a table full of rats. And, yeah. uh, it just, again, hammers home that fact that we're here one second, we're done the next. And, uh, for a, a young guy to see this movie, who's interested in film and understanding his own mortality to see it so profoundly put, uh, it was mm-hmm. really, really a pivotal moment. You know, it's, I'm intrigued that, uh, that Herzog never really got back to like, um, you know, hard horror after this. Yeah. Was there anything else that he? No, did I mean, well, my son, my son, my son, what have you done is, I guess, he considers it a, a type of horror film, and it is in, in some respects. But mm-hmm. I, the thing is, it depends where you're, what, what angle you look at his movies, because, uh, sure, this one has a, a bald, pasty vampire, and it just sucks blood, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, very uh, little blood in the movie. No, there's very little blood. There's no violence. But again, I wouldn't show it to a child still because it's it's still it's so morbid and so uh, dark. But mm. but I think all of his movies are horror films to some degree. I think there's horror in all. I think Grizzly Man is as much of a horror film as anything else. I think a Gary the Wrath yeah. of God's a horror. I think Cobra Verde is a horror film. I think there's moments of alarming horror and these moments of dehumanization. And uh, Wojciech is a horror film. Uh, you know, in many respects, Wojciech's a fascinating companion to Nosferatu because oh, he, he shot that right after, you know, Kinski was still bald. He hadn't even had time to grow his hair and did, when he did that. So he's still in kind of a Nosferatu mode. He acts like Nosferatu with no makeup in that film. Hmm. Uh, so I find that to be a horror film, especially the murder at the end. So uh, to me, yeah. to me, Herzog has made several horror films, even if he's not aware of the fact. Hmm. I hadn't seen uh, Wojciech. Now I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's 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 actually it's it's a it's kind of the the dark horse of the Kinski lot, and uh, I think it's one of certainly one of the best. Oh yeah, and of course it's modeled on a uh, uh, one of the masterpieces of dramatic German expressionism. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a good film. 
and it's not that long a film either. I, I always like films that are hmm. under ninety minutes. No, uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 very it's a, it's definitely compact, and there's a lot lot in there, a lot in there. Cool. Thumbs up from Dean. Look forward to the uh, uh, the issue of uh, Fangoria. Yeah, just guys, s- send me your uh, mailing addresses, and I'll make sure I uh, you guys get one. Oh, awesome! Okay, thank thank you. you. All right, thanks, cool. Chris. All right, thanks, Bye-bye. David. All right, thanks, guys. It was fun. Talk to you later. Thanks. I love the story of your marriage with this one. Yeah, it's that's going to stay with me. That was cool. good. Yes. It is cool. It is. I can't believe that. My wife even kind of forgot that. I told her that the other day. She's like, "Really?" So <laughs> I don't even think she even it meant as much to her as it did to me. But interesting enough. There you go. Well, I affected the life of a three-year-old when I she asked me to as uh, the daughter of an ex-girlfriend of mine. <laughs> She asked me to tell her a story. So I gave her sort of a PG version of uh, the Murnau Nosferatu. But she came right. into my living room where Dima had given me the the, the poster. Right. And she was terrified and would never come into my living room again. <laughs> there you but go. when she started acting, uh, her first role was being one, uh, in, a, in, a, in a children's theater production. She ended up being cast as one of the brides of Dracula. Oh, amazing. Wow. And on the day that I told her the, the story in my watered-down way... I was the first day I met the woman who is uh, in a project I'm working with on going to be in horror, uh, The Witch of Beacon Hill, uh, a story about the country's leading spiritualist. And my ex-girlfriend's daughter is the granddaughter of the woman who was named after The Witch of Beacon Hill, whose stepmother provided ectoplasm for the witch's seances. Oh, hmm. oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that could be provided. You can provide ectoplasm to someone. Yep. It, it happened. <laughs> How it happened, I have no idea. But anyway, Chris, good good to meet you over the whatever we're calling this. Okay, yeah, okay. all right. Guys. Maybe if I get up to Toronto again, I'll see you. Okay, all right. sounds good, man. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at diabolikemagazine.com. If you have any comments about the webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone.